0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. For this month's series titled Schools Out Forever, I'll detail crimes that occurred on school campuses one at a high school campus, one at a middle school, and one connected to a college campus. In the second episode in the series, a middle school in Washington state becomes the unlikely setting for a horrendous act of violence. In 1996, school shootings were still rare, even in the United States. The infamous school massacre that would happen at Columbine High School was still three years in the future. So when 14-year-old Barry Lukaitis entered his eighth-grade math class and opened fire, it would shock the community and spark a nationwide debate about violence in the media, school bullying, mental health, and gun control. But what was the real reason Barry Lukaitis decided to bring terror to his school campus? We'll attempt to unravel that question in this episode. This is Chapter 2 in the series, Schools Out Forever. Barry Lukaitis And the Frontier Middle School shooting. Many of us can point to our pre and early teen years as the most awkward and uncomfortable of our lives. And it's no wonder, because so many changes take place at once physically, emotionally, and socially. Puberty hits, our emotions go haywire, and for most of us, at just about the same time, we go from one-classroom educational cocoons to middle school, where we move from classroom to classroom for each class subject. We don't think about this too much after we've lived it and become accustomed to it ourselves, but it can be quite exciting or traumatic, depending on a child's personality. Think about it. You have a different teacher and a different set of classmates every hour throughout the day. When you already feel awkward and struggle to fit in with your peers, this can be stressful. Let me take a second to explain the middle school years here in the U.S. It may be different in other countries or even in other areas of this country, so I'll take a second to clarify. Typically, in the American educational system, grade school years end at the age of 12 or so. Then you're promoted to middle school or junior high school. Middle schools usually serve 6th through 8th grade students, or ages 12 to about 14. But some school districts have junior high schools that begin at grade 7 and are attended for just two years before they move on to high school. Generally, students enter junior high school at about the age of 13. Barry Dale Lucidus was an 8th grader at Frontier Middle School in Moses Lake, Washington, and just a few weeks away from his 15th birthday in the winter of 1996. He was dealing with the usual teenage stressors, but these were combined with a tense situation at home, and he wasn't coping well. Barry was a tall, skinny kid who was quiet, almost to the point of being invisible at times. He had a few friends, so he wasn't an outcast, but he also wasn't popular. He was, like most kids, just average. But in his mind, he was different from his peers, maybe even special. He was smart and his grades reflected this, but that's not what Barry believed made him special. In his opinion, his classmates didn't think about or feel things as deeply as he did. They all seemed to go about their days oblivious to the fact that, according to Barry, life totally sucked. He began to feel annoyance, resentment, and then downright contempt for all those around him. His classmates singled him out not as different or unique, but as weird. They made fun of him, teased him, and bullied him. As Barry saw it, his teachers were suckered by the popular kids who were given special treatment and privileges. And then there was his parents. They might have been the worst of all, in his estimation. His dad, Terry, and his mother, Joanne, were in the middle of a contentious divorce. His dad had simply checked out by moving 60 miles away to manage one of the family's businesses, a sandwich shop, while his mother stayed in Moses Lake running their ice cream parlor. But really, his parents had separated because his father left to be with another woman, and his mom was falling apart. Barry was caught in the middle, and he'd had enough. He retreated into himself while all the drama and tension swirled around him at home. He loved to read and immersed himself in horror fiction. His favorite author was Stephen King. He had the best-selling author of this genre's books stacked up in his room. He'd read a few of them, especially King's short stories, several times. He was also a movie buff and watched certain films on repeat. He loved the old spaghetti westerns made famous by American actor Clint Eastwood. In Eastwood's movies, like High Plains Drifter, A Fistful of Dollars, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, released in the 1960s and 1970s, the actor embodies the iconic character simply known as the Man with No Name, a gunslinger of the Old West who works as a bounty hunter hired to kill outlaws. He's an anti hero who drifts into town and with little fanfare seeks out the bad guys, and kills them off one by one, before riding off into the next town and his next assignment. Natural Born Killers was another film that 14-year-old Barry watched on repeat. Released in 1994, the movie was an American crime drama directed by Oliver Stone. It starred Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis, as the characters Mickey and Mallory Knox, a couple who bond over their traumatic childhoods and become lovers, and mass murderers. They act out a revenge fantasy by committing senseless and graphic acts of violence. At the same time, the movie follows a manhunt for the serial killer couple that is being watched as it unfolds as entertainment by the public. Barry Leukitis retreated further into this dark subject matter of violence, revenge, murder, and suicide in books, movies, and music during the winter of 1996. His thoughts and emotions became darker, and he disconnected from his family and friends. He became fascinated with fictional portrayals of the revenge he dreamed of exacting on others. We could debate which came first, the chicken or the egg. Did his immersion in dark subject matter cause his mental health to take a dive? Or were his mental health issues present before his teen years? Perhaps a seed was already buried deep inside the recesses of his mind that just needed the right conditions to bloom. It would later be reported that there was a history of depression and mental illness in his family. Barry's parents both had battled depression, and his maternal grandmother had made at least one suicide attempt. Or was it typical teenage angst that spiraled into rage when Barry failed to fit in with his peers? Children, especially preteens and teens, can be cruel. They all feel the pressure of the changes they begin to experience in their bodies, their minds, and their emotions. Wanting to fit in, be popular, attract a mate, or succeed academically, in sports, or in other areas can feel overwhelming during the teen years. Middle school, in particular, is a pressure cooker of emotions, and unfortunately, the cheap and easy way for a self-conscious teen to feel better about their insecurities Is by teasing, criticizing, and bullying someone perceived to be weaker or just different. Whatever factors or combination of factors rose within Barry Leucitis on that frigid February day in 1996 can be debated ad infinitum. But in hindsight, what is crystal clear is that once he entered his fifth period algebra class that afternoon, the once peaceful working class city of Moses Lake, Washington, would never feel the same again. Barry Lukaitis grew up around firearms. His father, Terry, the son of an Iowa farmer, learned to shoot at an early age. He was gifted his first rifle at the age of 12. Terry taught his son, Barry, to shoot, as his father had taught him. But Terry had become concerned about having weapons so easily accessible in the home. His soon-to-be ex-wife, Joanne, had become depressed as their marriage unraveled and had threatened to end her life more than once. Concerned for her mental health and safety, Terry had hidden some of his weapons and locked others in the trunk of his car to keep them from her. But Joanne had found some of these weapons and even began carrying a handgun in her pocket or purse. Over time, the other guns, including a 30 caliber rifle, disappeared from the trunk of Terry's car. Terry Lukaitis reported this to the Moses Lake Police, expressing concern for his wife, and stating he believed she had taken the weapons. Terry would later say that there had been no follow-up by the police after his initial report. Unknown to Terry, the weapons had also become a great source of stress for his son. Joanne Phillips, Barry's mother, had begun confiding in her son how deeply depressed she was and how angry and hopeless she felt about the situation with his father. In January, she told Barry she was planning to kill herself. She said she would take Terry and his girlfriend hostage, tie them up, and at gunpoint, tell them how miserable their affair had made her. But instead of killing them, she would surprise them by turning the gun on herself. She even told Barry the date she planned to carry out this public suicide, Valentine's Day, February 14th. At first, Barry had pleaded with his mother to abandon this idea. He even suggested that she write the scene as a play instead of killing herself. But when she continued to repeat the plan and even encouraged Barry to commit suicide with her, he shut down emotionally and told his mother to, quote, do whatever she wanted. Barry began to write and talk about death and violence. He wrote poems in his English class about how worthless his father was and how he wished he was dead. He told a classmate that it would be cool to kill people. He referenced natural-born killers, saying he'd like to go across the country killing people like Mickey and Mallory had done. Barry said he was being bullied at school. He was teased for being a nerd, he was an honor student who earned straight A's, and for his physical appearance. Barry was a good-looking kid, but was very tall for his age, extremely thin, and took to dressing in an odd way. He tried to emulate one of his fictional heroes, the man with no name, by wearing cowboy boots and Western-style clothing. Perhaps donning this costume was a way for him to feel in control, when at the time, he was feeling anything but that. His attire was most likely a way to embody somebody else, someone tough who could defend themselves, like the Clint Eastwood character. So in late January, he persuaded his mother to let him spend more than $200 from his savings account to purchase a long cowboy-style duster coat, like the one Eastwood wore in High Plains Drifter. But the coat was more than a fashion statement; it also had a practical purpose. Friday, February second, nineteen ninety-six was one of the coldest days of that year in Moses Lake, Washington. The weather caused classes at Frontier Middle School to be postponed for two hours, and the school day started late to allow students to arrange for rides. Rather than wait in the freezing temperature for a school bus, all classes would still be held but shortened. Barry Lukaitis didn't get a ride and instead walked almost two miles between his home and Frontier Middle School in the bracing cold. He was wearing his new duster coat. He carried with him three firearms: a 22-caliber revolver, a 25-caliber semi-automatic pistol, and a Winchester 30-30 rifle. He had specifically purchased the long coat to conceal the rifle. He had cut out one of its pockets to allow it to fit inside the coat, concealed close to his side. The two handguns he wore in a holster strapped to him. All three weapons were loaded. Around his waist, he wore three belts with almost 80 rounds of additional ammunition. He'd gotten hold of the weapons easily. His mother had taken them from his father and hidden them in their kitchen cupboard. Lukaitis didn't arrive at school until almost 2 p.m. He came through a back entrance, the one closest to his fifth-period algebra class that was already in session. As he entered the classroom, he immediately pulled the rifle out of his coat and pointed it at 14-year-old Manuel Vela Jr. seated in the front row. He fired it at the boy from less than two feet away, hitting him in the face and neck. He was killed instantly. Students at Frontier Middle School later reported that Manuel and Barry had, quote, had words between them just days earlier. Others said that Manuel was one of the kids who teased and tormented Barry. Barry had been kicked, shoved into lockers, spit on, and called homophobic slurs by his classmates. Years later, it would be revealed that reports of Manuel Vela bullying Barry Lekaitis were false. Vela's grandfather had been a migrant farm worker, who'd eventually scraped enough money together to start a produce hauling business. Manny Jr. was the oldest child of Christina and Manuel Vela Sr. His younger brother Nicholas was nine, and his mother was pregnant with the Vela's third son, Dylan, when Manny was killed just one month before his 15th birthday. The spray of bullets that hit Manny would also hit a boy sitting behind him, Arnold Fritz Jr. Arnie, as he was called, was also 14. He was hit in the heart, lungs, and spine, but managed to get up and walk to the back of the class before collapsing on the floor and struggling to breathe. Next to Arnie sat 13-year-old Natalie Hintz, who had also been hit by the first blast from the rifle. A bullet tore through her right arm and chest. She began screaming, and the class erupted into shrieks from panicked children. It had all taken place in mere seconds. The teacher, Leona Kyrus, was standing at the front of the class writing on the board when she heard the gun go off. She turned and saw Manuel fall and the chaos that ensued. She barely had a second to register what was happening when Lukaitis turned towards her. She said, no, no, and held up her hand briefly as she instinctively turned away from the weapon now pointed in her direction. He pulled the trigger and shot his teacher in the back. She fell dead, still clutching a stick of chalk and an eraser. Lukaitis next moved towards the back wall of the classroom, where he couldn't be seen through the windows or doors. He was still holding the weapon and pointed it at the class of over a dozen students. He remained calm, saying nothing. Two doors down, teacher and gym coach, Jonathan Lane, was also teaching a math class. "'I heard something that I knew was not right popping,' he recalled. "'I left the classroom, and as soon as I was in the hallway, I smelled gun smoke.' He heard screaming and followed the sound to Mrs. Kyrus' class. He opened the door and saw a shocking sight. Three students lay bleeding on the floor. Mrs. Kyrus' body was on the floor behind the desk. He saw Barry Lukaitis holding a rifle. Quote, the students were in sheer terror, Lane said. There was no doubt in his mind that the teacher was dead. He said, At that moment, I knew it was my responsibility as the only adult in the room to do the best that I could to take care of the situation. Lane dove into the room, shielding himself behind the teacher's desk. The body of Leona Kyrus was a foot away from where he landed. He tried to remain calm for the students. Hearing the voice of Barry Lukaitis calmly saying, Get up, Mr. Lane, he responded, No, Barry, I'm afraid. Lukaitis said he'd shoot another student if Lane didn't stand up. Chilled by the fact that the young boy who'd shot multiple people, killing at least one of them, was so in control and matter-of-fact while making this threat, Lane did as he was told. He couldn't know, then, that Barry Lukaitis was play-acting at being a badass. Lukaitis wore a duster and carried a rifle like Clint Eastwood, but he had another anti-hero in mind when he killed his teacher and terrorized his classmates. Lukaitis' favorite writer, Stephen King, had written a short story titled Getting It On when he was still in high school. Later, after becoming a best-selling author, he edited the story and retitled it Rage. It had been published in 1977 under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. Rage is a fictional story about a mentally disturbed high school student named Charlie Decker, who shoots and kills his teacher and takes the class hostage. Just after shooting his teacher, Decker is addressed through the class PA system by a school administrator who addresses him as Decker. Charlie tells the man to call him Charlie. Quote, all my friends call me Charlie, he says. When the administrator doesn't comply, Charlie calmly insists, if you don't call me Charlie, I'm going to shoot somebody. Leucitus began making demands and threats as if he were portraying Charlie Decker in a school play. He continued personifying the cold, calm, and murderous fictional Charlie Decker as he instructed John Lane to show himself. Lane did as he was told. Just then, the classroom door was cracked open by the school's assistant principal, Stephen Kyrus, Leona's husband. Barely controlling his panic, Mr. Kyrus called, How's Leona? Holding together his rising panic, John Lane answered truthfully, I think she's dead. Cyrus quickly retreated and ran for help. Lukaitis took control of the classroom, directing the rest of the students to line up against the wall. While he did so, Mr. Lane tried to assess the condition of the students who had been shot. He could tell that Manuel was dead, but Natalie was crying and in pain. Lane asked Leucidas if Natalie could be taken out of the classroom. There was also another female student who was in distress. She had diabetes, and was having trouble breathing in her fear and panic. Lukaitis finally agreed that they could leave. Mr. Lane picked up each girl one at a time, took them out to the hallway, and called for help before bravely returning. As he walked to the back of the classroom with the girls, Lane saw that Arnie Fritz had been gravely injured. He now told Leucitus that Arnie needed help. He said to him that Fritz was seriously hurt and might die. Lukaitis answered, so let him die. Lane insisted that the boy needed help, and Lucidus finally gave in. Quote, There was so much blood on the floor, I had to have two other boys help me drag him out, and we kept slipping, Lane later said. By this time, police had arrived and positioned themselves in the hallway. They called to Lucidus, but he refused to talk to them. He began calling the student's name off the class rulebook. Charlie Decker also did this in the story, and had them sit in the seats at the back of the room in turn. Like Charlie Decker, Barry Lukaitis took his class hostage. Police tried negotiating with him to release the students and give himself up before anyone else got hurt. He became angry, and when they tried to communicate with him by calling the classroom phone, he threw it across the room. In between these bursts of anger, Lukaitis tried to play it cool. Once, he even paraphrased a line from the book Rage, telling the class, quote, this sure beats the hell out of algebra, doesn't it? In the story, Charlie Decker says it, quote, sure beats the hell out of panty raids. Dukaitis became agitated with the constant interruptions by the police. He came up with a plan to end the standoff and called Mr. Lane to come closer. He placed a plastic bag over the end of the rifle and directed Lane to put the barrel into his mouth. He was going to be his hostage, Lucidus explained, and help him escape. Lane argued with him, saying it was too dangerous and the gun could go off accidentally. Lane was just a couple of feet away from Lucidus now. Just then, the police began once again calling to the gunman through a bullhorn. Distracted, Lucidus pointed the rifle into the air and began yelling at the cops. Lane saw his opportunity and rushed towards the gunman, grabbing the gun, and pushing Lukaitis against the wall. He yelled at the students to run. As they rushed out of the door and down the hall, the police ran in and disarmed Lukaitis. He was pinned to the ground and handcuffed before being marched out of the school into a squad car. The entire incident lasted about 10 minutes. Thank you for listening. One other way you can support the show is by becoming a Patreon member. For as little as $2 per month, you can get all new episodes of Once Upon a Crime ad-free and hear them before anyone else. Patrons are OUAC superfans and we show our appreciation for your support by giving you bonus episodes you can't hear anywhere else, as well as exclusive OUAC merchandise sent to you as a thank you. To find out more and join, go to patreon.com onceuponacrime There's also a link on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Thank you so much. Did you know that Once Upon a Crime can also be found on YouTube? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel to listen to our episodes and watch accompanying videos. If you have friends who love true crime but aren't podcast listeners, share our YouTube channel with them. Just look for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube make sure to put in Once Upon a Crime podcast. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and like and comment on the videos. And of course, share them with others. It would really help us out. Thank you so much. Barry Lukaitis shot and killed his classmate, Manuel Vela Jr. and his teacher, Leona Kairos. He told police it wasn't his intention to kill everyone. Manuel Vela had been in the front row when he'd fired the first bullet. The other two students, who were injured, Arnie Fritz and Natalie Hintz, were collateral damage who'd been caught by the rifle's strong blast. Arnie Fritz died later that day from his injuries. Natalie was rushed into surgery and survived. Her arm was so severely damaged that she almost lost it and remained impaired. She underwent several surgeries and had many complications in which she almost lost her life multiple times. She never regained full use of her right hand, but has remained positive and upbeat and is very grateful to be alive. Lukaitis was first charged on the Monday after the shooting with three counts of first-degree aggravated murder. He was arraigned in juvenile court. Because he was under 16 at the time of the murders, the court first had to decide whether he should be tried as a juvenile or an adult. To make this determination, several factors, eight in all, must be addressed. Some of these include the seriousness of the offense and the dangerousness of the offender to the public, whether the crime was premeditated, the sophistication or maturity of the defendant, and the prospects for rehabilitation of the juvenile should he or she remain in the juvenile system. These are collectively known as Kent factors, as they were set out in a ruling titled Kent v. The United States. In Lucidus's case, the court determined that his crime was premeditated and willful and the charges of first-degree murder and first-degree assault were grave offenses. They also ruled that it was impossible to predict if he could be rehabilitated within the time frame if he'd serve in juvenile detention. For these reasons, it was decided that he would be tried as an adult. Lucidus was additionally charged with first-degree assault for wounding Natalie Hintz and 16 counts of kidnapping. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity on all charges. His attorneys would claim that mood swings were the reason for his violent actions. The trial was moved to King County due to the high-profile nature of the case. The defense argued that an impartial jury could not be impaneled in the county where the crime occurred. The trial began in the city of Seattle on August 15, 1997. Barry Leucitis was defended in court by Michael Frost and Michelle Shaw. They claimed the defendant lost control, and committed the murders due to mental illness and bullying. They maintained that their client had bipolar disorder, which caused him to experience, quote, out-of-control mood swings. Michelle Shaw told the jury, the real issue in this case is why did Barry Lukaitis do something so tragically bizarre, and was it motivated by mental illness? Insanity is the only explanation for this incident, she said in the defense's opening statement. A witness for the defense, psychiatrist Joan Petrich, said that Lukaitis had been experiencing, quote, delusional and messianic thoughts before the shooting. She claimed he felt superior to others and, quote, felt like he was God. As the pressure built inside him, the doctor said these feelings were replaced by hate, disdain, and the sense that he didn't measure up to his peers. She said Lukaitis could not determine right from wrong during the killings because he was, quote, under the influence of his psychosis that distorted his thinking. She also told the jury that leucitis was experiencing hyperactivity and was taking the prescription medication Ritalin at the time of the shooting and was clinically depressed. She explained how his relationship with his parents contributed to his deep feelings of inadequacy. Quote, he was deprived of the opportunity to identify with his father. His mother dominated him. His identity was so much linked to his mother's identity, which was on the ragged edge and filled with suicidal thoughts." Dr. Julia Moore, who also testified for the defense and had examined leucitis over a dozen times after his arrest, claimed that he was psychotic and in a quote "robot-like trance at the time of the crime. His mother, who had since been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, had become dependent on her son for emotional support as her marriage shattered. The doctor said that Barry had been unable to cope with the, quote, emotional incest he'd experienced from his mother and the neglect from his father, and the stress of it all caused him to break from reality. The defense also stated that Barry was easily influenced by the violence and antisocial behavior he found in books, movies, and music. The real question in this case is whether Barry Leucitis walked into the classroom the day of the shootings with murder in his heart or sickness in his mind, Frost told jurors. The evidence is overwhelming in this case. He went there with sickness in his mind, she asserted. The prosecution claimed that books and movies had influenced Barry, but only to the extent that they fueled his rage and jealousy for his classmates. Prosecutors Grant Nodell and Donna Wise laid out their case, stating it was, quote, about a very, very angry young man who coldly and methodically avenged himself upon the world by murdering three people, maiming a fourth, and terrorizing and holding hostage a classroom. They described the graphic violence depicted in the film Natural Born Killers to the jury and said the defendant could recite entire scenes from memory after watching it repeatedly. The movie has become controversial since its release due to its overly violent and graphic content and glorification of violence it was said to have inspired several copycat crimes, including the shooting at Frontier Middle School. The prosecution said that Lukaita sought entertainment that depicted the graphic and violent mindset he already embodied, fueling him to commit his murderous actions. Although Natural Born Killers was written as a criticism of the media's glorification of violence, most who viewed it missed the irony. As a result, it became famous for the graphic violence portrayed on screen. The prosecution argued that Lukaitis was a cold-blooded killer who premeditated his crime, planning it extensively before putting the plan into action. While the defense explained his attire on the day of the shooting, an all-black Eastwood-like outfit, as a sign of his delusion, prosecutors said it was evidence Lukaitis wanted to, quote, inspire fear in his classmates. Survivor Natalie Hintz took the stand to describe what she'd experienced on that terrible day. Quote, the door swung open and I slowly looked up and I saw somebody in a long trench coat and a cowboy hat and in the air I saw a long big rifle and my first instinct was, was this really happening? Was it real? Barry walked in, turned to the first row of students and started shooting. The only way I can describe it is pure terror and confusion, end quote. Throughout the trial, Barry leucitis rarely looked up and sat looking at his hands or the table without emotion. He refrained from looking at witnesses, except briefly when his mother took the stand. Joanne Phillips was asked about the conversations she'd had with her son prior to the shooting, regarding her plans to kill herself in front of her husband. She admitted that this was true, and that she'd encouraged her son to commit suicide with her. When asked whether she thought how this might affect her son's mental state, she answered, I didn't think about Barry at all, I was so depressed and consumed by how I was feeling, I didn't pay much attention to whether it bothered Barry or how he was feeling, quote. Barry's father, Terry Lucidus also took the stand and testified about the fights and arguments his son had witnessed between himself and Barry's mother. Terry said his son didn't say much, but he knew that it bothered him a lot. Barry would often leave during these arguments to, quote, run and hide in his room. He would sometimes cry and plead with his parents, Why can't you guys just get along? Even so, Terry Lokaitis said he didn't worry about his son. Quote, Of all my kids, I thought Barry was the most normal. He was the quietest, the smartest, he said in an interview. On September 24, 1997, Barry Lokaitis, now 16, was convicted of two counts of first degree murder one count of second-degree murder, one count of first-degree attempted murder, and 16 counts of aggravated kidnapping. He was sentenced to serve two life sentences and an additional 205 years behind bars without the possibility of parole. His act of violence with a firearm on a school campus would be cited as a catalyst for other crimes, including the Columbine High School mass shooting three years later. High school seniors Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris infamously armed themselves with firearms and homemade bombs, dressed in black trench coats, and shot and killed 12 of their classmates and a teacher, and seriously wounded several others before turning the guns on themselves. After Columbine, there would be a rapid increase in the number of mass shootings committed in American schools. Coach and teacher John Lane became a hero in Moses Lake. He left Frontier Middle School for a time, to accept a position as a principal of another school. He eventually moved back to Moses Lake and returned to teaching at Frontier. He later served on the city council before becoming Moses Lake's mayor. Lane was invited to the nation's capital, where he testified before the House committee regarding the growing problem of school shootings in the U.S. He also met with the Secret Service in an advisory capacity while they prepared a report on the subject. In an interview, Lane expressed his opinion that more attention needed to be paid to the mental and emotional well-being of students as a preventative measure against school violence. He encouraged school administrators and educators to reach out to those who appeared to be struggling in an effort to reduce attacks like the one that happened at Frontier. Lane wasn't convinced that media consumed by youth such as video games and books were to blame for the increase in school violence. He said they, quote, maybe don't cause school shootings, But they contribute to them. Other factors lane cited for the increase in violence committed by students were quote, out-of-touch parents and low church attendance. Students at Frontier Middle School or those connected to the shooting continued to experience trauma and grief, which compounded the tragedy as a ripple effect. Ten months after the shooting, a 15-year-old cousin of victim Arnie Fritz, named Aaron Moore, shot and killed his mother, his nine-year-old stepsister, and himself. Arnie Fritz's father reportedly killed himself while visiting his son's grave a few years later. Although I could not confirm this through more than one source, so it might just be a rumor. Let's hope so. The Leukitises closed their business in Moses Lake, and Terry moved to Ellensburg, Washington. He addressed the community at a town meeting soon after his son's conviction. He apologized for his son's actions. Community members, including Manuel Vela's family— said they harbored no hatred for Barry's parents, showing amazing forgiveness. Manny Vela Sr. said he understood that they also had been hurt by their son's actions and that he didn't envy what they were going through either. Terry Lukaitis married and divorced once more over the years and is no longer in touch with his ex-wife Joanne. He still visits his son in prison once a month. The novel Rage stirred up some controversy as over the years, it has been cited as an inspiration for school shooters. In 2013, Stephen King allowed the book to fall out of print. That same year, he published an essay about the need for limited gun control in the U.S. He wrote this, quote, During my junior and senior years in high school, I wrote my first novel, then titled Getting It On. The story was about a troubled boy named Charles Decker with a domineering father, a load of adolescent angst, and a fixation on Ted Jones, the school's most popular boy. Charlie takes a gun to school, kills his algebra teacher, and holds his class hostage. Ten years later, after the first half-dozen of my books had become bestsellers, I revisited the story, rewrote it, and submitted it to my publisher under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. In February 1996, a boy named Barry Lukaitis walked into his algebra class in Washington with a 22 caliber revolver and a high-powered hunting rifle. He used the gun to kill instructor Leona Kyrus and two students. Then waving the pistol in the air, he declared, This sure beats algebra, doesn't it? The quote is from Rage. A P.E. teacher in a commendable act of heroism charged at Leucitis and overpowered him. In 1997, Michael Carneal, age 14, arrived at Heath High School in Kentucky with a Ruger MK2 semi-automatic pistol in his backpack. He killed three and wounded five. A copy of Rage was found in his locker. That was enough for me. I asked my publishers to pull the novel. King goes on to say that he owns handguns himself and writes, I have nothing against gun owners, sports shooters, or hunters, but semi-automatic weapons have only two purposes. One is that so owners can take them to the shooting range once in a while, yell yee-haw, and get all horny at the rapid fire and the burning vapor spurting from the end of the barrel. Their other use, their only other use, is to kill people. He ends with this. I didn't pull rage from publication because the law demanded it. I was protected under the First Amendment, and the law couldn't demand it. I pulled it because, in my judgment, it might be hurting people and that made it the responsible thing to do. Barry Lukaitis was found eligible for resentencing after a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2012. The ruling stated that people who committed the crimes before the age of 16 could not be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. While awaiting his resentencing in 2017, Lukaitis sent a handwritten letter to Judge Michael Cooper. He wrote, quote, I've never apologized for what I've done. I didn't because I feared that trying to apologize after doing something so terrible would only add insult to injury. If that feeling was wrong, I'm sorry for not speaking before, he said. He called himself a, quote, hostile and rude 14-year-old and apologized for not pleading guilty after the shootings. I could have at least had the decency to have pled guilty instead of trying to escape justice, he wrote. Alice Fritz, Arnie's mother, visited Lukaitis in prison and said she believed his apologies were genuine. On April 19, 2017, Lukaitis, now aged 36, was resentenced to 189 years in prison. He directly addressed his victims and their families for the first time just before the judge handed down his sentence. I'm sorry for what I did, Leucitus, who has graying hair and wearing glasses now, said. What I did was weak and evil and senseless. He said he did not have the tools at age 14 to deal with his anger and hatred towards others. Quote, I didn't have the skills I needed to be a man. He wanted it stated on the record that victim Manuel Vela had not tortured and bullied him, as had been widely reported. Manuel's family expressed their gratitude that their son, whom they knew to be a good young man, who was not a bully, had his reputation restored by Lucidus's admission. It was never my intention to kill everyone in the classroom, Lucidus also clarified. He expressed that while he could never make up for his actions, he hoped that by accepting his new sentence as final, his victims and their families might gain some sense of peace. He signed documents waiving his rights to all future appeals. As of 2023, Barry Lukaitis is incarcerated at Clellam Bay Correctional Facility in Washington State. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks once again for listening. I'll be back next week with the third episode in this series, School's Out Forever, and I hope you'll join me then. To watch the videos that accompany our episodes, Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Photos and video clips help you dive into each case even further. Search for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube or click on the link in the show notes. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia. Until next time, be good to one another.